Acts chapter 13 begins with the word now. Now. (laughs) That now is built upon, verse 24 in the, the preceding chapter says, But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they took with them John, whose surname is Mark. So the ministry it's speaking of, it tells us in Acts chapter 11, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word uh, to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then the tidings of these things came to the ears of the church that was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, exhorted them all that with one purpose of heart they should cleave to the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and much people were added to the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that for a whole year they were assembling themselves with the church, and they taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus. He signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth through all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Verse 25 in chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they have fulfilled their ministry. Now they bring with them John, whose surname is Mark. This is Barnabas's nephew. His sister is Mary in Jerusalem. When Peter was in prison, they went to the house of Mary. That's where the prayer meeting was. No doubt Saul and Barnabas were at that prayer meeting as well because it was Barnabas's sister's house. And her son, his nephew, is this John Mark who we, we meet here. Now we get to chapter 13. It makes sense starting with the word now. There was in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. He's mentioned last. So we come to this place now in the book of Acts where there is a major transition. The major transition is from Peter, though he's mentioned again in chapter 15. We're basically done with him. And now we come to Saul of Tarsus, who's Paul. The, the, the movement is from Jerusalem, which had been the hub of the church, the center. Now it moves to Antioch, because within three de- decades, Jerusalem's going to be leveled, and the Lord wants this gospel going into all of the world. And now the headquarters of it all moved to Antioch, not Pisidian Antioch. This is in Syria, third largest city in the Roman Empire. So... The Saul had come there through Barnabas. How many years had they been there? They taught for a solid year. We're not sure how many years have gone by at this point in time. But it tells us now about these five men, and it describes them. And it doesn't describe them as elders or overseers. It describes them by their function. It says that they're pastors and teachers. No doubt they're leaders there 
in the church that's at Antioch. And it says there were certain there at the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets. No doubt this, these are not Old Testament prophets. Um, there were New Testament prophets that could speak of the future, as Agabus did, but by and large, that was not the norm. The prophets in the New Testament were men who stood up. Remember, there's no New Testament written at this point in time. And they would expound or preach the word with authority. The teachers, it mentions here, and remember, you only got an Old Testament to teach from. These teachers, no doubt Saul being one of them, having been schooled in Jerusalem in the school of Gamaliel and so forth, there are prophets and teachers which are central to the health of the church, those speaking in authority, those opening up the word of God, and it describes them. Now, what an interesting description it gives us here. First, it says there was Barnabas. Barnabas, um, a wealthy man, as far as we know, in chapter 4, it said he had land and he sold it. He is a Levite. He is from Jerusalem, and he brought the money from the land. No doubt he's from Cyprus. It tells us right that in chapter 4. Is it land he owned in Cyprus? Was it local land? But to him it's no big deal. He brings the money. He lays it at the apostles' feet. And uh, they change his name to Barnabas, the apostles. And it says he was a Levite because he was the son of Consolation. He, he understood how to console people and speak to them. So he's listed first here. Interesting. He's the one that came from Jerusalem first to Antioch when they heard they were being saved. It says first when they came, they only spoke to the Jews. But then as the, the persecution was more severe, others came and they preached to the Grecians as well. And all of a sudden this church starts to grow in Antioch that is Jew and Gentiles. Paul said the partition wall is being broken down here. So we have this first one, Barnabas, who will come to know more as we go through the book of Acts. And then it says there is Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black. Some say it should just say Simeon the black. Um, no doubt he is from Africa, he is a black man. Some say, well, his hair was black, his, or his eyes were black. If you've ever been to the Middle East, everybody's hair is black, and everybody's eyes, that wouldn't, no, no reason for that. Is this the, the Simeon of Cyrene that bore the cross of Christ? Many think that it is. Certainly, anybody who had been in that position, we know the church recognizes him because Romans names his sons, uh, He would have, obviously, a very interesting place in any church he was in. If he was here in Calvary, Philly, we'd all want to sit and talk to Simon the Cyrene and ask him about bearing the cross of Christ and what that was like. Then it says there is Lucius of Cyrene, which we know little of except another man from North Africa. Then it tells us Menaean, and it says of him, which had been brought up, with Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas, uh, the son of Herod the Great. He's the one who put John the Baptist to death. So this man, Menaean, who it seems is, uh, is the son of part of Herod's family that fled to Rome and was raised there, it seems, with um, Herod the Tetrarch, again, which got out from under his father. His father was killing his sons, Herod the Great. And he was schooled and raised up, princely family uh, in Rome, and then sent back to that area in Judea, Tetrarch there, to oversee the area. And Menaean was brought up with him, with Herod the Tetrarch, which speaks of his position there in Galilee. And the question is with Menaean, did he see Jesus in Galilee? He was there. He was raised with a Herod family. He evidently was in that part of the country with Herod the Tetrarch. In fact, raised up has the idea of being um, 
adopted into the family. They were, um, he was his stepbrother, we would say today. Uh, so no doubt very close. So it would seem that Menaean was a man who was familiar with Galilee. If he was stepbrother with the Tetrarch, he was 65 to 68 years old at least. And uh, at this point in time, he's there in Antioch. And it would seem that he had lived in Galilee through the ministry of Christ. So what an interesting group of people. So far, Barnabas, who was a Levite, who no doubt lived all through the ministry of Christ in Jerusalem, and, and it must have had his mind blown had he stood in the temple precincts and listened to the teaching of Jesus. Had he seen any of the miracles? Simon the Cyrene, who had carried the cross of Christ. What an interesting guy we have there. Then Lucius of Cyrene. We're not certain who exactly he is. Prominent position. Then this guy Menaean. You know, you have part of the royal family so corrupt and so murderous, they go in a completely different direction. And here's a guy out of the same crew who ends up giving his life to Christ. You know, the, 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 the background, there's no excuse you know, anybody can be saved and serve the Lord. And then it just says, and Saul, <laughs> you know, you know, an afterthought or something, you know. So and it says it's just such an interesting group. No doubt there's the leaders there. And it says in verse two, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Listen, it's so interesting. The Holy Ghost said, separate, notice this, unto me, not unto Jesus, not unto Jehovah, separate unto me, and there's an aorist imperative there, once and for all, separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, notice, for the work whereunto, here it is again, I have called them. We're at least 14 years after chapter 9, verse 5, where the Lord appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, and he fell down. He said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. This is at least 14 years after that, depending on how many years. We know they taught at least for one full year, some add a few years to that. So you're 14 to 17 years, probably somewhere in there, that since Paul is converted, this is a guy, you know, people want to rush into ministry. People, you know, they, they learn two verses, they think they're pretty good. When, they're, when they learn three, they think they're an apostle, you know. You know, here's, here's Saul, here's Paul, converted by an appearance of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's blind for certain days. Ananias prays for him. He receives his sight. He's filled with the Spirit. He begins to preach in Damascus, causes an uproar. He leaves and he goes into Arabia for no doubt for several years where the Lord ministers to him and speaks to him. He says, the gospel I received, I didn't receive it from men. I received it from Christ. When he serves communion at Corinth, he says, he says I, I, I've given unto you the same thing I received myself from the Lord. That which I received from the Lord, I give unto you. So he, he received so much in those years. And then when he comes back from Arabia, he goes to Jerusalem and he causes such a stir there. Brilliant man. Secular history we have. Gamaliel said, I could not keep Saul of Tarsus in books. He was such a student. He, he, he just, you know, inhaled everything that Gamaliel gave to him. So when he comes back to Jerusalem, there's none that can really argue with him. It isn't like he doesn't know his stuff. And then they threaten, they put together a plan, they're going to kill him. So the apostles take him, they get him on a boat, and they send him back to Tarsus. And he's been there for at least eight years before Barnabas comes looking for him again and then takes him back to Antioch where he's teaching for a full year. And all of those years have gone by. And now the Holy Spirit's going to say, separate Barnabas and Saul to me, to the ministry I've called them to, which Paul knew. 
when the Lord appeared to him there in Acts chapter 9, he said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you before kings, before nobles, and so forth. He mentions that in chapter 22 of the book of Acts. He mentions it again in chapter 26 of the book of Acts. The ministry he was called to was the Gentile world. He didn't step out into it. He had been waiting. He didn't do anything without the Holy Spirit. Against the Holy Spirit, again, mentioned 54 times in the book of Acts. Again, Tozer, we did the first chapter, said, you know, if the Holy Spirit were removed from the church today, 95% of what we're doing would keep right on going and nobody would know the difference. He said, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church in the book of Acts, 95% of what they were doing would have come to a screeching halt and everybody would have known the difference. The Holy Spirit is directing here at this point in time. And he says, now how does he say it? We're not told. Does he say it through the prophets that are there? Does he say it through Barnabas and Saul? We just have this burden we want the church to pray about. Is it something where they all kind of look at each other and say, I can't believe you're saying that. We were feeling the same thing. You know, in chapter 15, they're going to write a letter to the Gentiles and say, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Isn't that interesting? It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Lay upon you no other burdens but these necessary things. So here somehow the Holy Spirit speaks. They know. They're listening. Separate unto me Barnabas first and Saul to the ministry that I have called them to. Now look, this is an interesting church we're going to see here. Uh, first of all, uh, r- remarkably, uh, this is a church that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about that. By the way, we see things being directed here. Huge, important. You know, we look at the days that we're living in, whatever, however old we are, whatever our age. You know, Corey Temboon didn't start her ministry till she was 70 years old. The world we're called to, what surrounds us right now is is a bad science fiction movie, a B-movie. That's what we're living in. It's insane. And the only place where there's hope and the only place where there's life is the church of Jesus Christ. The only hope in the world we're in is the gospel. And the darker it gets, the brighter that light shines. But how desperately we need the Holy Spirit. So this church is a model church in that respect. Secondly, it seems to me, this church is a model church. It's interracial. There's not one of these guys that's from Antioch. None of them are from Antioch. You know, you got Barnabas, who is from Cyprus, who's a Levite who comes from Jerusalem. You have Simon the Cyrene from North Africa and Lucius from North Africa. You have Menaean from some royal family, probably grew up in Rome and then lived in Galilee. And then you have Saul of Tarsus. None of these are Antiochans, you know. Now, I'm sure there were other leaders in the church, but there were elders, no doubt, probably. But these are the main guys. This is the hub. And what a great example for the church. How much we need to see that today. There's no difference between them on the basis of their race or their background or their social status, whether they were rich or poor. This church is one church. It's so incredible to look at the picture here. I love what it says here. They're ministering to the Lord. They're worshiping. Now, what was that like? You know, as they're worshiping, they're singing. You know, I think that was obviously part of it. I don't think they were singing songs about the Lord. I just don't. We have lots of great worship, profound theological thought. We sing songs about the Lord all the time, what he's going to do, what he does in my life. What do you think this worship was like? Barnabas was a Levite from Jerusalem. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. Simon had carried the cross. Manaim was raised in, uh, Manaim was raised in Galilee, had seen the ministry of Jesus. Saul had the living Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And Saul probably stood with the Sanhedrin and heard Jesus before he was crucified. When you have that crew together, they don't sing about the Lord. They sing to the Lord. I love it here when, when our worship songs are in the first person. Well, that's worship. When you, you know, you're singing to him. So much of the, what calls itself worship in the church today, and praise, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, it's so 
commercial. It's so fleshly. It's so, you got to have the best electric guitar player and the best drum. I'm not against any of that. I'm a guitar player. I like music. But too many times people walk out and say, oh, man, that worship was great. I am blessed. Wasn't that something? That was great. That's not the point. We're supposed to walk out and the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are supposed to look at each other and say, man, that worship was great, wasn't it? I was blessed, you know, because that's where worship goes. You know, and these guys, you can imagine the way they ministered, it says, to the Lord here. They had seen him. And walk with them. You know, you, you imagine what this was like. They got on their knees when they prayed, when they worshiped. It was a direct line. They only had an uplink. They weren't doing anything on the horizontal. So imagine what kind of a worshiping church this was. It, it was integrated. It, it was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Worship was no doubt all in the first person. I think the way that it should be here remarkably. And then... As they're ministering, they have a sense. The Spirit again is saying, separate unto me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work I've called them to. And look at verse 3. It says, and when they had fasted and prayed, which seems at that point to speak of the elders, it says they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Now, It's a bad translation. It says they laid their hands on them, and the Greek says they released them. The next verse says the Holy Spirit sent them. So the church doesn't send them. The Holy Spirit sends them. What the church does is release them. Because these were two good guys. These are an integral part of the leadership in this church. You know, sometimes someone comes to us and they say, you know, I think the Lord's sending me to Zanzibar. And, you know, they're troublemakers. We look at each other and say, praise the Lord. I hope he is, you know, just, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, that happens. Sometimes someone leaves and you're kind of grieved because they've been such a part of things. Here you see the church not hesitating at all to release. They didn't send. They released these two men. All right. If that's what's going to happen, you go. And it says the Holy Spirit sends them. One missionary years ago they spent some time with said, you know, there's only the went and the sent. That's all there is. The went can cause trouble. The sent are the ones we're looking for, you know. So what a remarkable picture. This church with all these other attributes is a church that has a vision for the gospel. Now, what's interesting about that is, look, The church in Jerusalem, the apostolic leadership largely stayed there. Anybody who left Jerusalem wasn't sent. They were headed for the high hills because of persecution. People that left Jerusalem didn't leave Jerusalem because the church let them go and there was a missionary vision. People that left Jerusalem fled because of the persecution. And it tells us that in several places. That's the only way God could get them to move out of there. But in Antioch, we have Jews, we have Gentiles, we have different races, we have people from different social backgrounds, and we have people that that are lifting their hearts to the Lord in person, sensitive to the Spirit, knowing his voice, however that came, we're not told explicitly. And they're willing to let go of people, you know, they they release them. You know, we bear witness with that. You you have the participle here on the second day speaks of the church. No doubt the first one, as they ministered, you know, that's talking about the, the five men that are named there that are specifically ministering. And it says, but when they had fasted and prayed, we're not sure about that. The second day, the participle, it kind of demands this is the church that released them and let them go. When we come to chapter, the end of chapter 14, it says this. And when they were come back, when they returned, they gathered the church together And they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So it seems like the church is the one releasing him. You know, the the church no doubt had gathered and they were all part of this. The, the, The church itself has a missionary vision. So what a great church here that the Lord puts before us, this model here in Antioch. 
And so, verse 4, they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, there's no missions program, there's no, you had to go to school for two years, there's no, you got to get trained, like there's none of that. And all that's good. But this church, it just says, the Holy Spirit sent them. So they, being sent forth, the church releases, the Spirit sends, they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, isn't that interesting? They departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So we have a first missionary journey picture around here somewhere. Okay. You see it? There's Antioch. There's another ending up. This is not this Antioch. It's this Antioch down here in Syria. The red hour arrows are going out. The black arrows are coming back. This is the first missionary journey. They come from, from Antioch down to Seleucia. You can't tell there. That's over 16 miles on foot. These two guys, Barnabas and Saul, Head out. The church releases them. doesn't say anything about raising funds. It gives no idea. They didn't have some big spiel that went on. We don't know whether they, you know, Saul made tents. We don't know. Are they, they paying for passage themselves, how this goes? We're not told. We know there are times the church of Philippi supported Paul. We read about it in other places. We don't have any of that information here. The first thing that happens is they walk 16 miles. Imagine that, especially on a night like this. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, you guys over here. There you go. It's not, it's not, it's not that Antioch. It's this Antioch. And uh, they walk from Antioch down to Seleucia. You see it right there. I love to tease my grandkids with this thing, by the way. If you have a cat at home, you can drive them out of their minds doing that on the floor. A dog, too. So they go, it says here, to Seleucia. It was, it was a port of the Royal Navy in the Roman fleet. So there were always Roman soldiers there, Roman power, Roman authority. And Luke, being a Greek who seems to then love, you know, the, the seaports and all, he always names the ports. When he takes us through the missionary journeys, he always says, this is where they came to port. This is where they came to dock. He always takes note, and particularly because of the travel in that Mediterranean world at that time, you could only sail at certain times of the years. It was very hazardous at other times. So he gives us some remarkable details. So imagine these two guys, first day of their missionary journey, 16 miles walking and talking together. What's that like? You know, Saul saying, man, I'm glad you came and found me at Tarsus. I was losing my, I was bored to death. Am I glad you came and got me, you know? And, or, or these guys, you know, what a great church. We can't believe, you know, were they saying, we don't want to go. We want to stay home, you know. We, you know, they, they go to Seleucia, yielded to the Holy Spirit. And from there, they sail to Cyprus. Okay, back with me here. There's Antioch to Seleucia, and then they sail to Cyprus. See it right there? Cyprus? You guys with me over here? They sail to Cyprus. That's over 75 miles from Seleucia to Cyprus. The ocean freaks me out. I don't like to get far enough out where I can't see the land anymore. It freaks me out. It is big and scary. I'm, I'm a shepherd. I like the land. Uh, so they come to Cyprus. Cyprus is the third largest island after Crete and Sicily in the Mediterranean world. It's 168 miles long and uh, it's about 80 miles wide. And they come here first to Salamis. Then they're going to go to Paphos on this end. The first to Salamis, then to Paphos. So they come to this Isle of Cyprus. Now, it almost makes sense. Of course, there's a divine will involved, but Barnabas is from Cyprus. John Mark, his nephew, probably had relations there, too, of one kind or another. And here's the interesting thing. You know, they start on their 
missionary journey, this first missionary journey, and the first thing place they go is to this island of Cyprus, which is a beautiful island today as well, by the way. A lot of people still go there and vacation there. And as they come there to Cyprus, it says, when they were at Salamis, which is on the east end of the island, it says they preached the word of God. You'll notice in the synagogues, plural, of the Jews, and they had also John to be their minister. So they come there to Salamis, and they begin to preach in the synagogues. Now, Paul, you know, he, he, he said the Jew first, then the Gentile. We, we heard him say those things, but he's also the one who tells the partition wall had broken down. In a very practical sense, this makes sense because they come to preach the word. Barnabas would impress anybody back in Cyprus. He had been a Levite for years. They don't get to hear from Levites in Jerusalem. Saul had been in the school of Gamaliel. He, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, a Pharisee. Uh, you know. So as they come, the synagogues open their doors to let them in. Now, Salamis had a decent-sized Jewish community. It says synagogues. And then the proselytes of the gate, the, the Gentiles, that believe, were in there also. But Saul and Barnabas have a... a jumping off point because they can go right to the Old Testament with this in the synagogues. They go right to the book. They have a place to start because they have a group of people who know the scripture, who know the Old Testament, so they have a jumping off place. You know, it will certainly spread from there. But this is a great place for them to start. So they come in through the synagogues, synagogues plural, in Salamis, and then it tells us John, who was John Mark, was there. He was their minister. Now, it's not the normal word for minister to serve. It's the word uh, Paul talks about being under rowers. It's the idea of being subservient, coming under. So John Mark was there, no doubt, to do the very practical things to help Barnabas, his uncle, and Saul, if they needed food, if they needed something to run and grab something. But I'm sure as well, there were times they said, John, why don't you go over and share in that synagogue today? Because John Mark is the one who's going to write the Gospel of Mark as time goes on. He has potential. He's going to fan out on them here in this chapter, but he has potential. Uh, John Mark saw the prayer meeting in his mother's house when Peter was delivered by the angels. John Mark, uh, you know, grew up in Jerusalem, whatever, if he's the one that fled from Gethsemane that lost his clothes, we're not sure, some feel. That's a, that's a John Mark. But it, it, regardless, you can't get Jesus out of his life either. So as he comes in the synagogues, this younger man, he has testimony about Christ. We are... We are 20 years after the ascension here. So for these guys, all of this is still very fresh in their minds. So John was there to serve Barnabas and Saul, kind of doing an internship, as it were. He's their under rower to come under them. And they're preaching. They're on the far east end of the island... And now it says, when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos. You're talking about 106 miles from Salamis to Paphos. They say 115 Roman miles, whatever that means. They go throughout the isle unto Paphos. How many villages they stopped in? How many they preached in? We don't know. You know that happened all the way across the island. Luke, our chronologer here who does a great job in his gospel of giving us a chronological order of events he's trying to get us to Sergius Paulus who is the governor of the island who becomes a convert so he doesn't spend a lot of time on all the details on these other things he just wants us to know when they were done the first part of the missionary journey at Cyprus the head honcho of the island 
was in love with Jesus Christ and gotten saved, which affects the whole community then, obviously. So he just says they came from this end of the island, Salamis, to this end, to Paphos. You guys are with me over here? Salamis, that end, to the other end, Paphos. Over 106 miles, they're walking again. They're stopping in villages, they're preaching, uh, and they get to the other end of the island now, and it says, it says, they went through the isle unto Paphos, which is the capital, by the way, of Cyprus in that day, and they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, Barabbas is son, Abba, his father, Bar-Abbas is son of the fathers, and it's interesting that Jesus the son of the father, they pick Barabbas, and they said his name was Jesus, Barabbas. You know, now we have another here, interesting, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. Kind of, why did the guy take that name to himself? We're not sure. Had he heard over 20 years before this of the miracles that Christ had been doing? But this is a Jew who calls himself Bar-Jesus. He's a sorcerer. He's working with the governor. Look, in this world, the ancient world would have thought that we were idiots. They'd have said, agnostic, atheist, those people are idiots. They don't have a God. Everybody knows there's gods. That ancient culture understood there were spiritual realms. So quite often, you know, Nero had a sorcerer that worked in his court that helped him try to figure out what to do. Um, Tiberius had someone from Babylon in his court that sat close, that advised him, spiritual advice. Um, Felix, when he wanted Drusilla, hired, it says he hired a sorcerer from Cyprus to come and help him draw Drusilla to himself. Could have been this guy, we don't know. So this is not uncommon in this day. Spiritual advisors have somebody close. So this guy bar Jesus, and it says, was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus. It tells us here, the Holy Spirit, he was a prudent man. He was wise. And he called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Isn't that interesting? He's the, he's the governor, so he's got ears everywhere. People are like that that are in government. And he hears they're there, and he hears things are happening. We don't know whether he hears there's miracles, whatever it is. And he says, I want to hear from them. I want to hear what they're having to say. I want to hear what the whole island's astir about, what's going on. So he calls them to come. Now, now interesting, in uh, over 50 years ago, they unearthed a plaque in Rome that talked about Lucius Sergius Paulus, which is this guy, and that's his full name. And they mention that the Roman government, now we don't know if this is right after this incident or right before it. It's in the same time frame, around 47 AD, that Caesar brings him to Rome because he was brilliant. He was an engineer. It says here uh, that he's a wise man, he's prudent. And him and three other engineers were brought to Rome because the Tiber River during certain rainy seasons would rise and it would flood the city, it would flood Rome. So Sergius, Lucius Sergius Paulus was one of the four guys that was brought there and mentioned Cyprus in his background. And uh, they engineered canals, uh, waterways, sewer systems so that when the Tiber River rose that it didn't flood out the city. Imagine back then these guys being able to do that, the, the engineering, what they were able to do. So this guy is a guy who steps off of you know, the archaeologist's spade into the light and says, you can listen to that chapter come, the guy it's talking about. Here he is, Sergius Paulus. You can call him Lucius if you want to. He's a prudent man, and he calls for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. How remarkable. Desires to hear the word of God. But 
Elemis, now the sorcerer, for so his name is by interpretation. Elemis can mean dreamer. Elemis can have the idea of somebody who knows things, a forecaster. That, that's kind of what he did. He claimed to know his, his born name he claimed was Bar-Jesus. His title, the sorcerer, is Elemis. So his name is by interpretation. Interesting here, look, it says, he withstood them, Barnabas and Saul. How he did that was seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith, which means he had already come to the faith. He's, he's, whatever oppression it was as he listened to Barnabas and Saul, something's already cooking in him. And this sorcerer who sees his job going down the tube as he watches this tr- is seeking now to turn him away from Jesus Christ, from the gospel. By, in some way, he wants to turn the deputy away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtly and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season, And immediately there fell on him a mist and darkness, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So this interesting thing that takes place here, and it says, when when these two guys, Barnabas and Saul, see this, Saul steps up, not Barnabas. Saul steps forward now under the unction of the Holy Ghost, not Barnabas. Saul steps to the fore, here in verse 9, and for the first time he's called Paul, and for the rest of his ministry, he's called Paul. Look, that's part of his given name. You know, he tells us this in Philippians about himself. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. So this is a young man of the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Saul was from in the Old Testament, Israel's king. And no doubt on the day he was circumcised, on the eighth day it says there, his father calls him Saul. He names him after the the royal line. You know, he's not from the tribe of Judah, He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and their king was Saul from their tribe. So he he names him Saul, it says, on the eighth day. On the ninth day, the day after circumcision, the father would give the Roman or the Greek name, and that name he gave to him was Paul, because they are Roman citizens. And as Roman citizens, he will have right through the Roman Empire. And no doubt when he grew up in Tarsus, when he played with the Jewish kids, they said, Saul, Saul. When he played with the Greek kids, they said, Paul, Paul. And at this point in time, as he's moving into his ministry in the Gentile world, the Holy Spirit tells us he goes back to that surname, Paul. And for the the rest of his ministry, we know him as Paul. Uh, So an interesting transition. Saul doesn't mean anything good in the Greek. Saul means something good in the Hebrew, you know, where it comes from. The the idea is it means asked for because the tribe of, because Israel asks for a king. So they get Saul. So Saul in the Hebrew is something desirable, asked for. Saul in Greek speaks of the way that a harlot swivels her hips when she walks. So you didn't want to be Saul, you know, uh, when you headed into the Gentile world. That may be part of it. I don't know. That's just free information. Uh, But he now, the Holy Spirit, calls him Paul for the first time. He's named, and it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we've only heard that once about him. In chapter 9, verse 15, Ananias comes and says, 
And brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to lay hands on you, pray for you, that, that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, 9.15. Since then, we haven't heard at all of Saul being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the first time since then, it says, in this instant now, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. The class condition is it's a new, fresh filling. He was a spirit-filled man. But in this incident, the Holy Spirit comes on him relative to the incident. I mean, look, in our lives, how many times are we in a circumstance, in a conversation, somebody comes across our path, something comes to us, and we're praying, Lord, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do here. How do I handle this? And all of a sudden, though we're spirit-filled Christians, the Holy Spirit impresses on our heart. He moves us. He speaks to us. The problem is, you know, we have cell phones and computers and movies and television. We're so distracted on the horizontal. These guys didn't have any of that. They had seen Jesus. They had heard from him. They had walked with him. They knew that he was there behind the scenes. So they were way more in tune to these things. And here, you know, I'm sure it's under... Saul's skin, he had that kind of personality, that this guy's trying to turn, you know, Lucius away from, Sergius Paul's away from the faith, and I'm sure there was something burning in him. But it doesn't say that. It says the Spirit came on him, and the Lord is the one who deals with him. So it says, Paul then, filled with the Holy Ghost, he set his eyes on him and said... This is, this is definitely Paul. He doesn't mince any words. Oh, full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? He says, you know, <laughs> bar Jesus, you're not the son of any Jesus. You're the son of the devil, he tells him here. He says, full, he describes him first, his nature full of all subtlety is villainy. The idea is something rotten and all mischief. He's untrustworthy. He's deceitful. There's something dark. That's, that's his nature. What drives it, he says, you child of the devil. You know, it's interesting. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh the lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So here Paul says, you're of your father, he says to, to Elymas, you're the child of the devil. Thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And that's what he was trying to do. Turn this man away from the faith so he's perverting the truth. Look, you might have friends, relatives that want to turn you away from the faith. And, and what they always want to do is pervert the truth. That's not true. You can't believe. You mean you believe that? You just do the same thing. And there's an enemy behind all of that. And he says to him now, Behold, think about this, Elymas, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. Now, that can be good or that can be bad. You know, there's a, there's a way that we want the Lord's hand on our life that's a good one. And there's another way the Lord's hand evidently can be on your life that you don't want to be in that situation. And he says here, behold, Elymas, you need to think about this. Not my hand, but the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And by the way, Elymas, I know what that feels like. Because Jesus took my sight away for three days. He said, I know exactly the world you're about to go into and the exercise your dendrites are going to be burdened with over that period. Isn't it interesting? He says, the hand of the Lord upon thee, thou shalt be blind, not seeing. Look, the sun, then he says this, for a season. The Lord could have just struck him down and killed him. You know, it, it, is 
is he is he making in grace a, a an opportunity for this Elemis when he comes out of this still to be saved to turn to the truth? I would imagine, I would imagine, the Lord could have just struck him dead. He would he wouldn't have been as much of a testimony as he was just striking him blind and trying to get people. He tried to lead you know Sergius Paulus away from the faith. Now he needs somebody to take him by the hand and lead him. The irony is remarkable here, as you look at this. He says, you know, you're going to be blind for a season. And when he said that, immediately there fell on him a mist and darkness. What in the world is that? I don't know. Everyone experience it. What kind of mist is that? Are you kidding me? A mist. I don't even know they knew what mist was. Besides, you know, fog and a storm at the sea. A mist fell on him and darkness. And then he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. How remarkable. Now we come to it then again. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? It says then, when this miraculous thing takes place, it says, Sergius Paulos, then it says believed. He's, it doesn't say he's astonished at the miracle. It says he's astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Because in the book of Acts, when we go through here, it's important. Signs and wonders, miracles, will bear witness of the word of God. The word of God never bears witness of miracles. problem in the church today, sometimes with charismania, and strange Pentecostal behavior, people spend all day trying to prove from the word that what they're doing is right. The word's not there to bear witness of miracles. Miracles came in the book of Acts to bear witness of the word that was preached. And it says, when he saw that, when the deputy saw what was done, he believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. And you can imagine, you know, this is... He had elements. He had all these. He wasn't. He was aware of spiritual things. I mean, there's a big altar to Zeus on the island and Dalphi and all of these, you know, strange pagan gods. It wasn't like Rome wasn't familiar with worship. It was pan, pantheism, you know. But but now he hears about this one. You know, and both these guys can say, I was there. I said, Paul can say, he appeared to me. I, I, I saw him in the courts. I was angry. I listened to him arguing about the Sadducees and Pharisees. He made me crazy. I hated the church. And then he came to me and he forgave me. He appeared to me. Or Barnabas talking about what it was like to be a Levite in the courts in Jerusalem. While Jesus, you know, both of them are, you know, it's not they're not teaching the New Testament the way we would at this point. They're saying he did this and he fulfilled what it says there. And he was the Passover lamb that took away the sin of the world. And he died and he rose we saw him we saw him risen we you know just so you can imagine it says that this guy then after after the miracle takes place it says he believed and he's astonished at the doctrine he's astonished you mean he died for me you know hundreds of miles from here a jew died on the cross in my place he received my punishment and he rose again the third day to prove that for our justification, he's astonished at it. He's overwhelmed, no doubt, because it's it's moved so powerfully upon his heart. And it says in verse 13, where we're not going now, when Paul and his company loosed, when when they left, Ramsey, in his study of the book of Acts, feels that Barnabas and Saul stay in Pamphos on that island of Cyprus from March to July. So they're there three or four months. You know that there was a church born. You know that this man who is, you know, in great authority there. In fact, the title given to him here, Bible scholars would pick on it and said that was our, but, but then when they find the, the archaeological proof in Rome, it actually says that go, the Roman government had changed the island to a different standard where his title was the one who was used in, in all of that. I'm wondering that, you know, the Senate had appointed him, the Roman Senate. Does he go back to Rome after this to improve the canals? 
If he did, he was improving, no doubt, the way living water was flowing in, in Rome as well. Or as you know, as he come from Rome back to here, Luke wants to get us to the point where he says, Lucius Sergius Paulus, the Roman procurator that ran the entire island, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that whole island was affected from that point forward. That's where Luke wants to bring us and what he has to say to us. So look, we look at this. Uh, Church at Antioch. And the the Lord paints this remarkable picture. Uh, There are people there, prophets and teachers. Important for there to be leaders in the church that are spiritual. This is a church then, their leadership is is multiracial. Uh, it's multinational. National. None of them are from Antioch. This is a church whose leadership cares about the Scripture, cares about the doctrine of Christ, cares about the the prompting of the Holy Spirit. This is a church who's willing to let go of people that it wants to to embrace because of a greater work. And this is a church who understands the importance of missions and the Holy Spirit's role in those missionary endeavors, because if they went on their own, nothing would have ever happened. Nothing, nothing would have been accomplished. We see too much of that today. Great amounts of time and money expended and no results, no fruit and no abiding fruit. This is a church to see something vastly different. And again, I think this is a worshiping church. This, With that crew of guys at the middle, when they lifted their voices and they lifted their hearts, they were worshiping Jesus. That, that was the standard, you know, for these guys. When these guys got on their knees to pray somewhere, they all their prayer was vertical. They weren't praying to be heard by anybody. They weren't praying at the end of their sermon to repeat their point one, point two, point three. These guys didn't care what people. When they got on their knees and when they worshipped, it was a direct line. It was going up, and it that to me infected the whole church. How wonderful! How wonderful! So look, read ahead. I'm hoping the Lord comes this week. If he doesn't, uh, you know, if he doesn't, then Lord willing, we'll be here next week. We'll look now as it moves on. We'll hear Paul's first sermon. We'll see the way this missionary endeavor begins to go forward. Um, I hope you realize the way things are going in the world. We could be out of here tonight. I really hope you realize that. It's crazy. It's crazy. What's happening is crazy. Right? It's crazy. That's all I can say. I feel like I'm in a bad science fiction movie. You know, they're telling us, and they're, you know, now now it's Omicron, Omicron, Omicron. Well, look, you know, last year, globally, there were 42 million abortions. Globally, four to five million people, they say, die of, of, of COVID. 42 million abortions, and nobody's giving out masks or vaccinations for that. You know why? Because we decide to do that. And as long as we decide to sin, it's okay. Leading cause of death in the United States, 15 to 49, fentanyl. Not COVID, fentanyl. And it comes from China. But that's okay because we're in control of that. But when a virus comes, we ain't in control of it. It's God. It's terrible. Everybody needs to, they try to control the whole thing. You know, it's just crazy. I watch it. It's like a bad science fiction movie. Now they're saying that Nassau has gathered 23 theologians to talk to them about how the public's going to respond if they hear there's extraterrestrial life. Are you kidding? I know there's extraterrestrial life. We're going to be extraterrestrial in just a little while. We'll be the major part of that. You know, you know, something's coming down and something's going up. And I'm part of the going up part of it. So let it come down. It's going to be like the days of Noah. Get them on down here so we can get out. So just, you know, aren't we living in a crazy world? Hatred is being, they, they want hatred. It's because Satan wants the church divided. He doesn't want the gospel preached. He doesn't want people teaching about Jesus Christ. He hates what's going on here this evening. He doesn't want us genuinely worshiping. He he doesn't want to see Philadelphia in revival. He doesn't want to see our parents and our friends and our relatives born again and saved. 
he's, he's dragging us into so much insanity. Behind the scenes, you can just feel there's something just so strange at work. And it's global now. It's not national. It's global. We know what that's all about, don't we? All right, so here we are. Learn from the, the, the study tonight. Apply it to your lives this week. Maybe you're going to meet an Elemis. Maybe you're going to meet a Sergius Paulus. Maybe you're going to have the Holy Spirit saying, go over there and talk to this person. You don't have to get on a boat to be a missionary. We're living in a pagan country. You don't have to go overseas. Just need to open your eyes in the morning. You're a missionary. You leave this parking lot, you enter the mission field. Right? Let's stand. Let's pray. And Father, I know you've overheard, Lord, and we, we ask that, Lord, we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask that these things on the page, Lord, certainly this is your word, certainly miraculously put to the page through the, the quill of, of Luke. He was the pen in your hand, Lord. But certainly it's literal history. Certainly these are men and women we're reading about that when the trumpet blows, we're going to stand with. We're going to be with them. Our relationship with them is ahead of us. And Father, it does our hearts good to look at them, to watch them move, to hear about their lives, and to know you put this to the page so that here these, Lord, millennium later, over 2,000 years later, Lord, we could look at this together. We could understand it, Lord. You this is a love letter that's sent, Lord, from 2,000 years ago to us here tonight because you wanted us, I believe, Father, to take these things. Lord, I'm so stubborn. Lord, I'm so thick. I'm so dull, Lord. I'm such a knucklehead, Lord. So much of the time, Lord, let this burn in my heart, Lord. Let this be fresh fire, Lord. Lord, let the presence of your spirit and his voice and his leading be real in our congregation, Lord, and in our fellowship in new and in deeper ways. Let your word, Lord, rise off the page in the way it hasn't, Lord, in a long time. Let us see many saved, Lord, as there's still time. And Lord, we trust you to do that. We look to you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.